Teach us, Lord, the way of your decrees, that we may follow it to the end. Direct us in the path of your commands, for there we find delight. Amen. Now, when I was at school, I remember observing Remembrance Day. So on the 11th day, 11th hour, 11th month of the year, everything would stop. We'd be silent for two minutes. It's a time when we'd remember those who fought in the wars. We'd remember those who gave their lives to protect our freedom. We'd remember the end of the hostilities of war and the peace we now enjoy. We'd commemorate the date each year, lest we forget war and those who fought in it. In today's Bible passage, we see that the Jews' deliverance is also commemorated in a yearly festival called Purim. But how did they celebrate their deliverance? Did they pause for a couple of minutes to to think about what God had done? What did the Jews remember? Those who died in battle? What about God? Is God left out of it? His name is not mentioned in the whole of the Esther narrative. So is this a purely secular Jewish festival? If so, what's it got to do with us as Christians? Well, looking at how the Jews respond to their deliverance will point to how we should respond to our deliverance. For God has wonderfully delivered us as well. When we last left our story, the evil Haman had been impaled. But Haman's edict to destroy the Jews is still live. The enemy is dead, but the jaws of death are still open. Scene one, Mordecai writes a counter-edict. Now, how is Haman's edict going to be dealt with? In verse five, Esther pleads with the king to revoke, that is to bring back Haman's edict. But the king's response helps us see what the problem is in verse eight. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Now the problem is this. Edicts written in the king's name cannot be revoked. The edict has gone out and it cannot be called back. So Mordecai writes an edict to counteract the first edict. Now the eagle-eyed among us may have noticed that this edict counters Haman's edict in chapter 3, almost word for word. The counter-edict allows the Jews, on the same day as the original edict, to, verse 11, assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. Now notice that the Jews can't just attack anyone that they liked. The Jews could kill the armed men who attack them. The counter-decree only allows for self-defense. Now when the decree went out, the the Jews rejoiced. Even those from other nations declared themselves to be Jews. Verse 17. Why would they do such a thing? 
Perhaps it's much safer to join the winning team. Well, the reason is given in verse 17. For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So does this remind you of anything? The fear of the Jews had fallen on them? It's similar to Rahab's response. Rahab heard about the power of God in the Exodus and Israel's military victories. Rahab says to the spies in Joshua chapter 2, A great fear of you has fallen on us. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, the Jews haven't been delivered from the jaws of death yet. But this phrase, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them, tells us that God is on their side. And once the God of heaven and earth is on your side, deliverance is a foregone conclusion. Scene two, self-defense and deliverance. The fateful day arrives. The Jews defend themselves against those who hate them. In the citadel of Susa, they kill 500 men. They also kill the sons of Haman in verses 7 to 10 and then impale them in verse 11, verse 14, 7 to 10, verse 14. So why kill them and then impale them later? Why? Probably to deter others who might attack the Jews. In Malaysia, I had a student uh, that I was teaching. His name was Billy. Billy had dark features he had big build, maybe like Al. And he also had uh, tribal tattoos on his arm like Al, but um, uh, Billy's tattoos were tribal, tribal tattoos. Now, Billy's ancestors were headhunters in Borneo. In the past, they used to hang skulls on their longhouses. Well, the message of the skulls and the impaled bodies is this. You attack us, and this is what's going to happen to you. In the rest of Susa, they kill 300 men and 75,000 in the rest of the provinces. Now, we are horrified by this massive body count. And we wonder, did the Jews go too far in protecting themselves? Now, I'm going to spend a few minutes on this because I can imagine that we, or some people that we might speak to, would find this killing very disturbing As we read this passage, these are some things we need to keep in mind, and I'll give you seven things we need to keep in mind. Now, first, this is a description of war and killing, which is never neat and tidy. Perhaps some Jews did go too far. Perhaps some Jews held grudges against their neighbours and used this as a chance to get back at them. This is possible, but we aren't told as such in the text. Two, if Haman's plan had gone ahead more people would have died. Some estimate that there were 750,000 Jews in the Persian Empire at this time. Three, the text tells us that the killing was limited to the armed men only, verses 6 and 15. Four, 75,810 is a lot of people, but a small percentage of the Persian Empire which was estimated to be 35 million people at that time. Five, the Jews didn't go berserk. 
Although they're allowed to plunder goods, they laid no hand on the plunder, repeated in verses 10, 15, and 16. Looting by victors is expected in times of war. But the Jews took no spoil. They weren't motivated by greed. Six, not taking the plunder is the opposite of what King Saul did when he was meant to kill King Agag, 1 Samuel 15. Now, remember back from the first week or second week, uh, Haman was an Amalekite from the line of King Agag. Mordecai was from the line of King Saul. Now, King Saul did the opposite of what he was meant to do. He took the plunder but did not kill King Agag. The Jews in Esther don't take the plunder but they do wipe out King Agag's line, Haman and his ten sons. So what is the narrative saying? The Jews in Esther complete what Saul should have done and they do it in the way it should have been done. Seven, peace and rest can only be experienced if the enemy is removed. If pockets of the enemy remained, the Jews would always be worried that these enemies or their descendants would rise up and attack them again. So keeping these seven things in mind, I don't think that the Jews went too far in defending themselves. Now, let's just zoom out for one minute, zoom out, to see the big picture of the Bible. Because the broader context helps us also understand the implications of this chapter. So we're going to go all the way back to the red arrow pledge, uh, God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. Now, we can summarize the promises as land, offspring, blessing, lob, just like in tennis, lob, lob. Land. The Jews in Esther are outside the promised land, although some have returned already. Uh, Next slide. Thanks, Bruce. Offspring. The Jews are a people spread throughout the Persian Empire. But God's offspring promise is under threat because of Haman's edict. Now, if God's people are wiped out, there is no Jesus blessing. And if there is no Jesus, there is no blessing for all the peoples on earth, including us. No Jesus, we wouldn't be here this morning. Now the flip side to blessing is curse. In Esther, those who attack God's people are cursed by God. The Jews take no spoil because they are not acting for their own benefit. They are carrying out God's judgment. So we can see how looking at the Bible's big picture helps us understand what is going on in the Esther narrative. So now let's zoom back in on Esther chapter 9. The Jews defeat their enemies. God delivers the Jews. Scene 3, celebrating deliverance. Let's consider what the Jews celebrated. Now, I've been watching the Australian Open this week, and I did watch um, Bharti play last night. As soon as a player wins, what do they do? They raise their arms, or they pump their fists, or like Bharti did, they uh, let out a primal scream. 
or they might even hit a ball into the crowd. What do the players do? They celebrate victory. Now, what did the Jews celebrate? As the times when the Jews got relief from their enemies. The Jews have just been delivered from the jaws of death. They've just defended themselves against those who attacked them. It would seem right to want to celebrate defeating your enemy, right? At least that's how Genghis Khan saw things. Genghis Khan was the founder of the Mongol Empire. He and his successors conquered much of Central and uh, Central Asia and China. And now this is what he says about being the victor. The victor. Man's highest joy is in victory. To conquer one's enemies, to pursue them, to deprive them of their possessions, to make their beloved weep, to ride on their horses, and to embrace their wives and daughters. Is this what the Jews did? Is this how they celebrated? No. Three times we're told that the Jews laid no hand on the plunder. The Jews did not embrace the enemy's wives and daughters, and they didn't even celebrate immediately. They celebrated the day after. It doesn't look like the Jews celebrated the defeat of the enemies. No. Verse 22 tells us they celebrated relief from their enemies. The word relief comes from the same word as the one used by Haman in chapter 3. When Haman went to hoodwink the king, Xerxes, into annihilating the Jews, this is part of his sales pitch. It is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Literally, Haman says, it is not to the king's profit to cause them to rest. But after 11 long months, the Jews finally find relief and rest. They celebrate deliverance from death. How did this relief and rest come about? Did you notice in verse 22? As a month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration, he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. How did it come about? Sorrow to joy, mourning to celebration, fasting to feasting. How did relief and deliverance come about? Through reversals. It's one huge reversal and a series of small reversals, as we heard last week. Now, in the rest of chapter 9, we find that Purim is established in writing by Mordecai and Esther. And by the end of the book, in chapter 10, verse 3, we see the Jews enjoying shalom, or peace. Mordecai is second command in the Persian Empire, and he speaks peace to all his people. They enjoyed rest, and now they enjoy the other side of the coin, peace. Peace in the Old Testament is not just a time of no war. Peace is well-being, wholeness, and positive relations. So, what sort of remembrance is the festival of Purim? Is it basically secular, just like Remembrance Day? 
Take a look at verse 22 again and see if you can see hints of God. Is it secular or are there hints of God? Let me point out three hints of God. Relief or rest is a loaded word in the Old Testament. God rested on the seventh day of creation. We rest on the Sabbath. And the promised land is rest from wandering and rest from enemies. Rest is therefore a gift from God. Two, second hint of God. The reversal is described as when their sorrow was turned into joy. Which raises the question, what turned things around for the Jews? Or perhaps who turned things around for them? Three, the gift-giving in verses 19 and 22 remind us of the gift-giving at two other Old Testament festivals, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. So perhaps the giving of gifts during the Purim festival is a reminder that deliverance is a gift from God. Now these three things point to God, so I don't think that Purim is a purely secular festival. Now, you might have also noticed that joy is a dominant note in the celebrations. Gladness, rejoicing, or joy is mentioned nine times in chapters 8 to 9, and five times just in verses 17 to 22 of chapter 9. Even for the Jews today, the festival of Purim is the loudest and the most fun of all the festivals. As you can see on the next slide... People uh, for the festival of Purim dress in costume and they wear masks, perhaps alluding to God's hidden presence in the narrative. They use a clacker. See that little clacker um, on the table there? And whenever they hear Haman's name read out in the Esther narrative, they clack, 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 clack to remove or get rid of his name from the narrative. Um, they're encouraged to drink alcohol and they eat triangular pastries. See the ones in the little basket there? And they're called Haman's Ears or (laughs) Haman's Pockets. Sounds like fun to me. And why wouldn't the Jews be overjoyed? As Christians, how much more should we be overjoyed at our deliverance? As it says in Hebrews chapter 2, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The Jews feared death under Haman's decree. We no longer need to be slaves to our fear of death. So um, I work as a GP on Fridays. Patients often come to see me because they're afraid they're about to die. Now, they don't say so when they come and sit down in the chair, but after I listen to them describe their symptoms and I examine them, I can assure them or reassure them. Your vertigo is from a middle ear imbalance, not from brain cancer. And they reply, phew. So I'm not going to die, doc? And I reply, well, you're not going to die, at least today. Last week I turned 50, as I was sharing (laughs) over here, 
And so I actually was reminded of my own mortality. We might fear death because we're worried it could be painful or because we have to leave our loved ones behind. We might fear death because we haven't finished everything we want to do in this life or because we're not sure what's on the other side. But Jesus took on flesh and blood to become like us, to destroy the power of death. Jesus defeated the devil, the great enemy of God's people. So we are now delivered from our fear of death. For if we are in Christ, we died with him and we have been raised with him. We can look forward to the day when we'll live with him forever in our new glorified bodies. So let me just say that if you do not identify as a Christian, now is the time. We saw in the Esther narrative that some people declared themselves part of God's people before the day of destruction, verse 17, chapter 8. Seeing that, God's, that victory was assured for God's people, some people joined God's people so that they didn't have to fear death. And in chapter 9, verse 27, we read that some of these people join God's people and celebrate Purim. So if you don't identify as a Christian, trust in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour to join God's people, Christians. And you too can be delivered from your fear of death. For us who are Christians, how should we respond to the wonderful deliverance that we have in Christ? Two main ways we should respond to God's deliverance. Remember, rejoice. Just like the Jews, we commemorate God's greatest deliverance. As Christians, we don't celebrate Purim. Easter, when we celebrate the ultimate reversal, is our closest yearly celebration. In some churches, we have yearly festivals and seasons to help us remember. Along with Easter, we also have Christmas. Before these, we have Lent and Advent. These cycles help us to remember God's mighty deeds in delivering us. And of course, we have the Lord's Supper. We celebrate it more often than every year, but in it, we also remember our deliverance through Jesus' death. Because God knows our problem. Our problem is that we tend to forget what God has done for us. We all have spiritual amnesia. So these sacraments and festivals and seasons and cycles help us to remember. So that's our first response to God's deliverance, to remember. Our second response to our deliverance is to rejoice. Just like in the festival of Purim, our lives should be bursting with joy. As the Apostle Peter says, Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, how would you describe yourself? How would your wife or husband describe you or your brother and sister? Are you joyful or mournful? 
Are you glad or grumpy? And what things in your life make you thrilled? Does your family see rejoicing in God's mighty acts? Do your friends and colleagues hear you delight in your deliverance? Now, I think we're often not joyful because we don't remember our deliverance. We make long to-do lists every day, or at least I do, and we think that ticking off each of these items will make us satisfied and glad. But from today's passage, there's one thing we can put right at the top of our to-do list. Remember deliverance. And as we remember God's greatest deliverance, may others see our joy and join us in the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are God who delivers. Thank you for delivering your people time and again. Thank you so much for our deliverance in Jesus. Deliverance from Satan, sin, death, and the fear of death. Each day, help us remember and meditate on your deliverance so that our hearts may be bursting with glorious joy. And may others be attracted to your kingdom by our lives and words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.